We're continuing on in our sermon series in the Gospel of John this week. We're at the end of uh, chapter 6. So, a little bit of background, um, intro before we read the passage. Chapter 6 of the Gospel of John is Jesus with the biggest crowd he's ever had. So this is Jesus at the height of his popularity. He's made a big splash. He's got a bunch of people following. Thousands of people have come to him. And the chapter begins with this massive crowd following him. He's got all these disciples. Everything looks like it's going really well. And John chapter 6 ends with Jesus with 12 people with him. Jesus runs off thousands of people, essentially. Um, what's going on? Is there's a profound disappointment with who these people find Jesus to be. And that's what we're going to talk about this morning. So read with me. It's printed for you in your bulletin. If you have your Bible, we'll be starting at verse 53. John chapter 6, 53 through 71. This is God's word, good, beautiful, and true. Jesus said to them, Very truly I tell you, unless you eat of the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood is eternal life, and I will raise them up at the last day. For my flesh is real food. My blood is real drink. Whoever eats my flesh drinks my blood remains in me, and I am them. Just as the Father, the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so the one who feeds on me will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven. Your ancestors ate manna and died, but whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. He said this while teaching in the synagogue in Capernaum. On hearing it, many of his disciples said, This is a hard teaching. Who can accept it? Aware that his disciples were grumbling about this, Jesus said to them, Does this offend you? Then what if you see the Son of Man ascend to where he was before? The Spirit gives life. The flesh counts for nothing. The words I have spoken to you, they are full of spirit and life. Yet there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus had known from the beginning which of them did not believe and who would betray him. He went on to say, This is why I told you that no one can come to the Father, come to me, unless the Father has enabled me. From this time, many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed him. You do not want to leave too, do you? Jesus asked the twelve. Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have come to believe and to know that you are the Holy One of God. And Jesus replied, Have I not chosen you the twelve? Yet one of you is a devil. He meant Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, who, though one of the twelve, was later to betray him. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word, even when it puzzles our minds. When we come away baffled, thank you for these hard words that push us deeper. To see who you are and what you're about. To see Jesus and all his grandeur coming to us. To lift us up to you. So I pray in these moments set our hearts affections on him. Teach us who you are who we are. I pray in your name. Amen. Where do we go when we are disappointed with Jesus? When we are disappointed with God? Because it's inevitable. Disappointment with God is inevitable. It's going to happen. Now those disappointments might look a little different for each of us depending on how our lives unfold. It may be disappointments that sneak up on us and feel like a sucker punch. Maybe the unexpected loss of a job or the death of a loved one or a natural disaster. Those feel like they come out of nowhere and they just hit. Or it may be disappointments that linger 
and build. It may be something like a, a, a long-term unwanted singleness. It may be something like an unhealthy marriage or infertility. The slow unraveling of a dream you had that just is not coming to be. Whatever it may be, disappointment is inevitable in our world. It's something that marks our lives. Our world has fallen. It doesn't work the way it's supposed to. Sin and its effects are, are profoundly deep. So the question is, in the midst of our fallen world, in the midst of our lives where real disappointments happen, what are we going to do with our disappointment with God? Now some people in the face of disappointments disengage. Rightly troubled by the presence of evil in the world, they question if a good God could even exist if a world like ours is true. So their disappointment leads them to disengage and to deny, to walk away. Now others disengage in a different way. Maybe they numb themselves with drugs or alcohol or whatever it may be. Others try to deny the disappointment altogether. This usually hides behind some kind of uh, religious uh, uh, facade. <laughs> I don't want to say facade. But sayings like everything happens for a reason in the midst of trouble. That's soft comfort. That's not much comfort when something bad is happening. God is good all the time. Even when something really bad just happened. That's a, a lot of times that's a denial of the reality of discipline. I think in our text today, we are being invited to take our disappointments, whatever they may be, and not disengage, not deny them, but in the midst of our disappointments and our doubts, our disappointments with God, we're invited to come and to wrestle with God, to struggle with God. Now, I know that might sound weird, but I don't think that wrestling and struggling with God is an anomaly. It's not a strange thing when it happens in the midst of us having faith. I actually think it's part um, of the essence of what faith is in our world. Wrestling with God is not a sign that our faith is weak. It may be a sign that our faith is maturing. Because when we struggle with God, when we come to God and we wrestle with Him in the midst of our disappointments, we're not engaging with God as just a concept, an abstract idea. We're dealing with God as a person. We're willing to come in the face of our disappointment and share our disappointment. We're willing to come in the midst of our anger and share our anger. And we have tons of biblical precedent for this. If you don't believe me, read the Psalms. So in our passage today, I think we see a lot of disappointment with God. There's a couple of sets of people here. We have the disciples who John talks about that are hearing Jesus speak. This is the larger crowd. He says the disciples, they're disappointed with what they hear. We have Peter and the twelve. And Jesus talks to them. They're disciplined. Peter and even Jews. So let's talk about it a little bit. First, look at uh, what their disappointment is. I think it breaks down into four different categories. This is their areas of disappointment. Notice in verse 60. Jesus has gotten done teaching of this big day. He's got this big crowd around him. And what do they say? They say, this is a hard teaching. Who can accept it? Now that word hard, they're not saying this is hard to understand. They're saying this is harsh. This is offensive. I'm offended by the words you just said, Jesus. So what was so difficult and offensive for them? 
I think there's a handful of teachings that we just walked through in John 6 that kind of uh, fall into these categories of disappointment. The first one is this. He challenged their deepest held religious convictions. Take, for example, their interaction. In this passage, they wanted bread, right? They've said, we want manna just like our ancestors had in the wilderness. We want more of that bread you gave us the other day. And Jesus is pushing them to see that uh, this, this sign that he had done is not about just giving them bread. He's doing a sign in their midst that points back to him as their nourishment. But they're offended in the process because he's saying your idealized past, your ancestors get man in the wilderness, is not what God is leading towards. The redemption that God brings into our fallen world is not just to provide a meal for people, as miraculous as that would be in the midst of the wilderness as it was for the first generation of Israelites. The purpose of God's redemption is for Him to come and become our nourishment. It's the words He's talking about in that harsh language of eating my flesh and drinking my blood. Jesus is saying, I am God who has come for you to find your all in me. But they're offended by this because it feels like to them, I think, that He is saying, Moses doesn't matter. Your religion, or at least the way you've practiced it and thought about it, doesn't matter. Yet Jesus pushes them to see that he is the true bread of life. He's the nourishment beyond the filling of their stomachs with food. He's telling them their religious commitments, their ideas about what a, a perfect world would be to have a man like their ancestors. Their religious commitments cannot provide the deepest needs of their souls. He's saying he can. Now, it's important that we realize, I'm going to stop here and say, it's important we realize Jesus is not anti-Moses. He's not anti-Old Testament. This is not Jesus saying, cut off the Old Testament, just read the New or anything like that. Jesus didn't come to start a new thing. He saw himself as the fulfillment of all the promises, all the hopes, all the longings and frustrations that are built into the Old Testament story. And that's what he's saying here. The manna under Moses that the crowd is asking for was only a sign pointing to the true and better bread of life, Jesus. He's the true bread from heaven. He's the better manna from heaven. As he says in verse 55, my flesh is real food and my blood is real drink. It's the reality that the manna that God provided for their ancestors had pointed to all along. But in continuing to, then, to point them to the future, Jesus is telling them that they have essentially gotten their religion wrong. That they got some pieces right. But they've got the whole thing, as far as the way they think about it, wrong. And that's offensive. That's harsh. Disappointing. They couldn't come to Jesus and simply find their religious convictions affirmed. And fulfilling them, Jesus changed them in a sense. And so that's the first area of disappointment with Jesus here. Jesus has taught and he's offended their religious sense. Those deep-held convictions. But the second was this. He, he challenged their political dreams. Challenged their political dreams. Now, they had an idea that when God's Messiah came, he would be, just like every other king in the world, just a bigger and stronger king. That he'd show up and he'd be, he'd be the incredible hawk and he'd just smash through and do all the right things for them. And they would cheer. God's, God's doing uh, the, the stuff we want him to do. Now you might remember earlier in John 6, after Jesus had miraculously provided for him, it says 
that they wanted to make him king by force. They were so excited about what he does that they were going to grab him and just install him as king. But Jesus flees from this. And that's their, really their first disappointment. They, they go to make him king and they can't find him. Jesus flees from this. Because yes, he's king of God's kingdom. That's absolutely who Jesus is. But he's not a king on their terms and he's not a king on our terms either. Now we only discover later what the kingship of Jesus means. It's a king that walks into the greatest uh, enemies of our hearts. Walks into sacrificing himself to gut sin and guilt and shame of his power. That's what his kingship means. Not rolling into Jerusalem to knock down all the people. <laughs> they wanted a king like a hitman. They'd walk in and point, get that guy, get that guy, get that guy, take him out. He challenged their deepest hell, political desires and dreams, and they were offended. They were offended. The third one, and I didn't know how to phrase this, but he, he challenged their sense of decorum, their, their social sense of what, what's okay to say. We mentioned this last week. Jesus talks about eating flesh and drinking blood. This is grotesque. This is like horror movie, gory language here, right? You don't say it in church, especially. Jesus is speaking to them here in a synagogue and says, Jesus is talking about eat my flesh and drink my blood. But I think the shocking language is on purpose. It's almost a shocking language to shock them out of their role. Their, their, their comfort there. And a shocking language that points to the shocking nature of his redemption. The sacrifice that Jesus will make. Giving his life, as he says in John 6, for the life of the world. Now, I think in their disappointment here, and him upsetting their social mores and their, their decorum, I think in their disappointment they actually missed an important connection. Because Jesus is saying here, essentially, I am what the Passover pointed to. If you know anything about the Passover in the book of Exodus, the beginning of John 6 says that this whole scene takes place right before the Passover. Right before the Passover, which was the celebration every year of how God had provided a way to avoid judgment and freedom from slavery in Egypt for that first generation. The Passover happened in the midst of a very wicked place in Egypt, a place of great oppression and slavery. And God says, I'm bringing judgment to this oppression. I'm bringing judgment to this slavery that has happened. But my people, I don't want you wrapped up in that judgment. So here is how to, uh, to, to um, have the judgment pass over you. That's the, that's the tie-in for the, the word there. He says, take a lamb. And we take this lamb, sacrifice this lamb. Take the blood of that lamb. Put it on the doorpost of your homes. And then celebrate a meal together. Take the blood, put it on the doorpost as a symbol of your, your, your being marked as God's people to not be judged in the judgment that's being poured out on Egypt. And eat this meal. And Jesus saying here about his blood and his flesh, he's pointing them. He's saying, I am the one the Passover pointed to. Don't feed on the Passover lamb that just pointed to me. Feed on me by faith. 
Come to me by faith. Now, he's not saying, as I said, Jesus isn't saying, hey, come be a cannibal. He's not literally saying, come eat my arm. No. <laughs> I think the crowd there knew that, too. They were under, able to understand the imagery and poetry and everything. But in their sense of uh, not liking this language, I think they missed this connection. They were offended and disappointed that their Messiah, if he's the Messiah, would speak in this way. Now, fourth, and this is the final place of disappointment for them, I think. He challenged their self-sufficiency. He challenged their self-sufficiency. Jesus tells them plainly here, they can't think their way to God. They can't work their way to God. They can't use their brain power to think their way to God. That in Jesus coming to them, it's a matter of pure grace all the way through. They can't status their way to God through their religious heritage. Jesus makes it clear that God is doing something ultimate, something cataclysmic in Him. Something utterly and completely based on the grace of God. That's what Jesus is saying when He speaks about no one can come to me unless the Father enables He's not saying your little chess pieces that God just moves around on the floor. That's not what He's saying. But He's making this point. The grace of God, the light and life of all mankind that is breaking into our world, it's something that explodes our categories of understanding. It's something new. We can't account for it in our own categories. This is the transcendent God who is not limited in any way Breaking into our limited world. This is the God who dwells on high, the, the, the language of Isaiah. He is high and lifted up, but dwells with the humble. And Jesus, God is coming to dwell with the humble. And explodes our categories of understanding. We have to leave any ideas of intellectual superiority or status superiority or whatever it may be behind. Because the coming of Jesus to us is grace. It's all grace front to back. It's never a point where we say, this is the paycheck that I'm getting. This is the paycheck that I deserve. From front to back, A to Z, all the way through, is the grace of God. And in encountering it, we don't try to fit it into our categories. We're baffled and we worship. That's the proper response. So this is their disappointments. He's disappointed their, their religious convictions. And the way they've always practiced their religion and thought about it. It's challenged their political dreams and ideals, what they really would like to see happen. It's challenged their ideas of decorum and social okayness. <laughs> and he's challenged their sense of superiority. And this is something, this level of disappointment, these categories is something if you read through the Gospels, you'll see throughout. Jesus keeps interacting and fellowshipping with and eating with the wrong people. He keeps allowing the wrong people to touch him. It's upsetting the social decor. He keeps speaking about how the Old Testament and all the hopes and dreams and longings and frustrations of God's people is fulfilled in him. He's upsetting the religious ideas. He keeps pointing them to a kingdom that's not going to come and swallow the world whole, but is going to swing the doors of the, the, the kingdom of God wide open and invite all people to come no matter their background. To lay down their rebellion against him and find their all in him. Jesus keeps upsetting in these same categories over and over again. Not just this crowd here, but all throughout the Gospels. So, in the midst of everybody there who's disappointed, all of them, 
is disappointed. How do they respond? We'll look at the crowd first. Verse 66. From this time, many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed them. They disengaged. They're disappointed with who God has shown himself to be in Jesus. And so they disengaged. They refused to grapple with the tension. They refused to grapple and wrestle with God in the midst of their disappointment. But they're not the only ones who are disappointed. And Jesus knows this. That's why he turns to the twelve. This is his core group that traveled with him all the time. The whole three years of his ministry. He turns to the twelve who just had been disappointed as well. He says what? Well, verse 67. You do not want to leave too, do you? The twelve are disappointed. If you read through the Gospels, they're continuously defended by Jesus and disappointed in what they see. You read through the Gospels and some of his disciples, there's one story they'll pull them aside and they'll say, look, when you come into your kingdom, can us two sit at your left hand and your right hand? Like they, they pull him away from the rest of the twelve and they're like, can we get the special seats? And you, when you come in and show yourself, Jesus tells them, you misunderstood me completely. But they're continuously offended by Jesus, by his teaching, by the things he does, by the things he doesn't do. He upsets their religious assumptions, their political dreams, their social assumptions about what good people do and their sense of self-sufficiency. But the twelve, here, John 6, Peter speaks up, as he always does, as their spokesperson. They don't turn away and they're disappointed. They're disappointed, truly. But look what Peter says in 68, verse 68. Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have come to believe and to know that you're the Holy One of God. Peter's response is not somebody saying, Jesus, I love everything you just said. I love it. It's great. Those idiots who left, and because they were disappointed, they're, they're just dumb. But us, we're standing right here. I love everything you just said. No. Peter's saying, yeah. <laughs> that was really uh, hard words he said there. And I need time to process this. But where else am I going to go? Where else am I going to run to find the life and the grace you bring? It's nowhere else. Where else am I going to go to find a fountain that will not run dry with God's grace for me? It's not easy. But Peter is saying here, this is hard, but we're going to wrestle. We're going to wrestle. We're not going to turn off our disappointment. Pretend it's not there. We're going to wrestle with this. We're going to wrestle with you. Yeah, there's one more person disappointed in this text. Look at verse 7. Then Jesus replied, Have I not chosen you, the twelve? Yet one of you is a devil. And he meant Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, who though one of the twelve was later betrayed. Now this is the first mention in the Gospel of John of Jesus being betrayed. So if we're reading through... Think of it kind of like a movie. You know, in a movie you'll show like the secret bad guy that is really he's going to turn his back on the main good guy and like show a scene and you'll see, oh, foreshadowing. Something's happening. This is what's happening here at the end of John 6. It's showing us Judas for the first time. Says he's going to betray Jesus. And it's hinting that here, right here, what Jesus had spoken about in John 6, this was the beginning of Judas' disenchantment. Jesus that eventually led to his betrayal. 
Now elsewhere it's hinted that Judas was offended by Jesus accepting the wrong kind of people. And it even mentions later in the Gospel of John that Judas was the treasurer of the group and he was like stealing money out of the, out of the fund that they used as they traveled. Um, but this is the beginning of his disenchantment that leads to betrayal. Now earlier in John 6, we talked about it a couple weeks ago, there was a storm. And it was like a foreshadowing then that rough times were ahead. And this identification of the betrayer here shows us a foreshadowing of how tragically this storm would occur. Because Jesus would not simply walk in to Jerusalem and say crucify him. The mechanism of how that worked was a betrayal, a deep betrayal by a friend. Jesus entering even to the greatest... So I return to this question now. What will we do with our disappointment with Jesus? Because here's the thing. All those categories that they were disappointed with Jesus in, those are areas of our disappointment too. We have our images of what God's like. Jesus upsets that time and time again. He will not conform to our boxes. He upsets that. It disappoints our ideas of who God is and how He gives grace. Or we have our political dreams or our desires. But Jesus will not be harnessed as many times as people have tried to. He will not be harnessed for people's political purposes. He'll upset our social ideals. He'll force us outside of our blockade of people who are just like us. He pushes us to the margins, to the people who are disenfranchised, to the people who are far away from the centers of power and wealth. Jesus pushes us out. He upsets our categories. So what will we do in the midst of our disappointments? I'd like to invite you and myself to not disengage like the crowd. To not grow bitter and become a slanderer or <laughs> accuser like Judas. But to wrestle. To wrestle. Some closing thoughts here. I said in the beginning, wrestling with God is not an anomaly. Difficulties and doubts in our relationship with God are not a strange thing. They're the essence of what it means to be the people of God. And here's what I mean. In Genesis 32, Genesis 32, Jacob, the patriarch, grandson of Abraham, who had received these great promises from God, that through Abraham and his family, God would bless all the nations of the earth. That grandson Jacob was a terrible guy. Jacob literally means like usurper. Not underdog, but guy that reaches out and manipulates his way to the front, takes advantage of other people. And that's what Jacob had done in his life. And at a crossroads of crisis, Jacob wrestles with God. This is in Genesis 32. Quite literally. Wrestles with someone sent by God. And is changed in the process. But in that wrestling, that is when Jacob's name was changed. From usurper. To Israel. His name was changed to Israel. And that became the name of the entire people of God. And what does Israel mean? It means wrestles with God. Contends with God. The very name given to God's people. Fulfilled in Jesus. And thus ours as well. Is wrestles, struggles, contends with God. It's of the essence of what it means to walk in this broader relationship with Him. 
So don't see your doubts as a, uh, your troubles as an anomaly or a sign of a weak faith. Wrestle well. Wrestle well. We don't have to be scared of doubts. We're not scared. For God is true. But let's wrestle well. He doesn't ask us to turn our hearts off. Finally, in Mark 9, and I'll close with this. Jesus heals a little boy. And uh, right before he heals him, his father has brought this little boy to Jesus. He says, Jesus, if you will, heal him. Jesus says, all things are possible through faith. And the father says, I believe, help my unbelief. I think that's where we sit in this world. I believe, help my unbelief. It's not one or the other. These aren't poles. It's not black and white where I either believe or help my unbelief. They're married together. So in the midst of our disappointments, let's be people who say, I believe, come on, believe. Let's wrestle well. Not turn away, not disengage, but wrestle well and depend upon the grace of God and Jesus, which is surely to come even in the midst of our disappointments.